Bless his holy name. I tell you, we're in a time and in a space for what the Lord is doing. If you don't have knowledge of that special place, you need to find it. Find that closet, find that place where you can be with him and he might be with you. Blessed is his name. We're going to take a departure this morning from our journey through the book of John. We're about to enter into uh, the sixth chapter of John. But we need to look at a passage this morning that really is pregnant with possibilities for us specifically as the church of Jesus Christ and for us as the body that he has given us to be in. I want you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. That's the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. I sincerely believe this is the type of church that the Lord has planted in this place. And I'm totally assured that this is the type of church that we long to be. If you found the sacred scripture, would you please stand? Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And the word of God says this, And to the angel of the church, in Philadelphia, right. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who said that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of 
my God. Never shall he go out from it. And I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. We recognize here that this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus gave to the church of Sardis no words of commendation. Well, why is that, Pastor? Because they had such a lax attitude toward doctrinal matters because they continually compromised with the secular world outside of the church and they continue to invite paganism into the church. Yet, we see here at the church of Philadelphia, he utters no such words of rebuke. Jesus only has words of condemnation for the Christians who are living in Philadelphia. These Christians that are living in Philadelphia who are part of the church at Philadelphia, number one, they have kept the word of Christ. Secondly, they have refused to deny their Lord even though they are being opposed, even though they are a church with little power, little resources, and struggling. And because of their faithfulness, what does Jesus say? Jesus makes a promise to them. He says, I will deliver you in the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth that is going to test those on the earth. Then he lets them know that because of their faithfulness, because he's going to hold them fast, they are going to gain entrance into the heavenly city. You see here, Jesus is repaying the faithfulness of that church and its members. You see, the members of the church of Philadelphia are true members of the visible church as well as true members of the invisible church. Well, Pastor, what's the difference between the visible church and the invisible church? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Even though the Bible does not use the terms invisible church and visible church. This whole idea of the visible church versus the invisible church is a natural result of the biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation. The visible church, like here in Philadelphia, like here in New Life, is an expression of Christianity that anyone can see. They see our gatherings. They see our practices of worship on Sundays. And they see that we are a church that is seeking to become a pure church. But anyone inside the church or outside the church recognizes that everyone who's in the visible church is not saved. 
Because the visible church includes unbelievers. Now the invisible church is the true church. This is the church that only God can see. He sees born-again believers, past, present, and future. He recognizes that his church is comprised of redeemed people. And let the redeem of the Lord what? Say so. And they have been sealed with a promise. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit that should hold them until they receive the fullness of their inheritance. Now the visible church, that's the local church. It can most times it refers to a specific congregation that gathers in a specific building. But the invisible church, that encompasses every church that is a true church. The visible church is identified by its religious trappings, church buildings, ministers and clergy, calendars and ordinances, and ceremonies and denominations. When someone says, I go to such and such church, they're referring to the visible church. To identify with the visible church is to accept the label of Christianity or Christian without accepting the labor of being a Christian. Many people accept the label without the spiritual transformation that comes and is initiated by the Spirit of God. But let me tell you something, this label will not grant you membership in the invisible church. This label only makes you a nominal Christian. You know what nominal means? It means being such in name only. Demas forsook Paul in 2 Timothy 4 and 10. And Paul reminds us when he said, He loved the world more than me, and he deserted me. You see, Demas was part of that visible church. And, you know, people in the visible church can hide their character for a moment, but sooner or later, their true colors are going to show. It's like 1 John 2 and 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Nominal Christians, my friends, are church boards and chief sitters that never go beyond the identification of the label of Christianity. They never go any deeper into their faith. They're Christians in name only, yet Christ has no bearing in their lives. You may have one sitting right next to you this morning. They go to church, they self-identify as Christians, but they are lying to themselves, they are lying to the congregation, and they are lying to an unbelieving world. Because their view of a relationship with Christ is primarily a social construct not a spiritual connection or a spiritual covenant 
Christ has no he has no lordship over their morality. He has no lordship over their resources. They take a very minimal look at their faith. But those who are in the invisible church, those who are redeemed, those who are spiritual, those who are heavenly bound, those who are in this world, but not of this world, they recognize the difference. Jesus explained once in Luke 17, 20-21 when he said this, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is among you. The invisible church doesn't need physical accoutrements to make themselves visible. Take away the liturgy of the church and the invisible church will still worship. Burn down the building that houses the invisible church and the invisible church will still worship. Even take away the tax exemption of the invisible church and the invisible church will still support itself because the gates of hell will not prevail against the invisible church. They recognize the visible things of the physical church, buildings and hymnals and prayer and pews, but they recognize that all of that is temporary. 1 Corinthians 7 3 of 731b says, Because the present form of this world is what? Passing away. But the invisible things of God will never pass away. Because God is eternal and he dwells in the heavens. Luke 12 33 says this Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no feet approaches and no moth destroys. You remember earlier in our journey through the book of John, in John chapter 4, verse 20, when he's there with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she exclaims, You Jews, Claim to know where worship is, and that worship is in Jerusalem. So the Samaritan woman is speaking of the visible church here. But look at how Jesus reacts to what she said. Look at how Jesus responds by speaking of the invisible church. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. All of us are called to make God visible to the world that we live in. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to 
will, and to act in order to fulfill this good purpose. You need to understand something before we get started here. That the church of Philadelphia was not a perfect church, but it was a pure church. The church at Philadelphia was not a perfect church, but it was a pure church. We're seeking not to be a perfect church, but a pure church. One that pleases God. One that is seen by the outside world, whether they agree with us or whether they dismiss us, they recognize that we love Jesus. All true and pure churches can be seen in the church of Philadelphia. But the question this morning is whether you and I are in both churches, the visible church and the invisible church. The question is whether you and I are members of the church in Philadelphia. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you are coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle, without blemish or flaw. We know that the church of Philadelphia was not a perfect church, but it was a pure church. A church that you gave an open door, a church with little power that you protected because they kept your word. And they became a church that conquers. Oh God, make us members of such a church here on earth that we might honor you and give you glory. Oh God, please accept our membership in the invisible church where your son is a pastor who is the author and the finisher of our sacrifice. We ask all of this in the matchless name of your son, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's children say, Amen. This book of Revelations is an amazing book. The first vision that comes out of chapter 1 is the vision that John has of the resurrected Christ who walks in the midst of his church. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, was one like the Son of Man. Start right there. He's saying he saw Jesus in the midst of the lampstand, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. You see here, this vision that John records here shows that Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He goes right after this and he starts, Jesus speaks himself to those seven churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. 
the church at Ephesus, at Smyrna, at Pergamon, at Thyatira, at Sardis, and at Laodicea. We're picking up here in the sixth letter, the sixth church he spoke to, the church at Philadelphia. Now, when Jesus speaks to these churches, he addresses each one on their faithfulness and he offers them encouragement in the midst of their struggles, but he also rebukes those who are not standing up to the standard. He rebukes the church at Ephesus and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis because of their serious shortcomings. So, Pastor, what were their shortcomings? I'm glad you asked. They lost their first love. They lost the love for the brethren, for those inside the church. They started to tolerate false teaching and that woman Jezebel. They allowed paganism into their midst. And Jesus commands them to stop and repent lest they face further judgment. And at the end of each one of these letters, how does he sign out? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus knows the struggles of his people. And he promised all of those who are faithful that they will overcome despite all of the efforts that oppose the gospel and seek to do them harm. In each one of these letters, Jesus knows all about their problems. When we get to Philadelphia here, let's give ourselves some background. Philadelphia was a city that had always experienced widespread damage because of the earthquakes that happened so often. In AD 17, they had a massive earthquake. This city was founded about 140 BC. And the person who founded it was Atlas. Atlas had a last name which was Philadelphus. Now, Atlas loved his brother, Eumenes. And because of his great love and renown for his brother, he named the city that he founded Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It became an important city of commerce and trade. It was a great crossroads where people could come in and they could exchange cultures and they could exchange products all the way from Syria and Persia all the way into Greece. Now the very ground that this city was upon was very fertile, a fertile volcanic soil that produced great vineyards, and it produced great vineyards, it produced great wine and other fermented beverages. But the damage here again was so widespread time and time again, especially here in AD 17, that it really wrecked the city that the Roman government under Tiberius gave them three to four years of not having to pay their taxes until they could get things back together. In fact, Tiberius gave them money to help them rebuild the city because they were such an important city of commerce to them. During this time, and really all the way 
for several years, many people who had been in that earthquake never slept inside their dwellings anymore. They would sleep outside, and those who owned businesses in Philadelphia would come in, open their stores, sell their goods, close their stores, and go back out of town until the next morning. Because they were so worried that they would wake up and be buried in their sleep. The political leaders of Philadelphia were so impressed with the Emperor Tiberius' generosity toward them. They renamed the city for him. And they called it Neo Caesarea. Or some said Neo Caesarea. It means new city. The name stuck with them for about 30 years, and then it was renamed again, Flavia. And that's from another Gabriel that changed the name. But most of the longtime residents of Philadelphia just kept calling it Philadelphia. What we need to know is that the Lord knew it as the Church of Philadelphia, and that He placed in this church an open door. Look at the beginning of verse 7 here, with the Lord speaking. The angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut. When he shuts, no one can open. We see the reference here to the angel of the Lord being assigned to whether it's the angel that was over each church or it is the angel that is presiding for the Lord in leadership over that particular congregation. We see in this open, opening salutation here that Jesus in his post-resurrection glory wants to make sure that everyone understands that he is the risen Lord, that he walks among the mist in the middle of his people, that he's able to protect them from danger, that he's able to reward those who are faithful, and he's able to call for repentance to those who are unfaithful. Jesus starts off by making a claim about himself. He says, and he's speaking of the one that is holy and true. Those are divine attributes. It shows his deity. He understands, and those Jewish leadership. Now remember, every time John says the Jews, he's not being anti-Semitic. He's speaking of Jewish leadership. So he understands that the Jews here understand that Isaiah himself spoke of Yahweh, spoke of God the Father 20 times in his prophecy by using the word holy. They understood the prophecy that was in Isaiah 22 and 3. So Jesus is saying, not only am I holy like God the Father, I'm also true like God the Father. In fact, I am the true Messiah of Israel. He wants them to recognize this point. And that they, if they recognize this point, they would understand that they would have protection 
in the midst of this storm, instigated by this large synagogue. Here in Philadelphia, there was a large synagogue that was very, very active in opposing Christianity. Jesus wants them to know that he is holy and true, and therefore he's the God of Israel, and he holds the key of David. Turn your Bibles for just a moment. You have to see this. Look at Revelation 1, verses 17 through 18. Just the very presence of God and the power that it holds. When I saw him, this is John speaking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now we see numerous times in the New Testament that when a human just encounters an angel, they fall prostrate to worship him. And the angel says, get up. That kind of worship is only for God. But when John falls down at Jesus' feet, he doesn't tell him to get up. But what does he do? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and age. I have the keys to death, and I have the keys to the grave, is what he said. And then Jesus cites from Isaiah 22, 22, I will place on him, or place on his shoulder, the key of the house of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. This is important, because it reminds us of the prophecy of Elijah that was given to him, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind him with your sash and commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be the father of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. Here, the Jews had always interpreted this prophecy to mean that they had authority to shut the assembly of God. So anyone that was a Jew converting to a Christian, they would excommunicate them. They thought that they could keep them out of the church. They claimed the authority to shut down the assembly to those becoming Christians. But Christ is telling them, no, I have placed an open door before you, and what I open, no one can shut. And what I said, no one can open. New Life, we need to recognize right here, right now, if the Lord is going to bless us and grow us, we are not allowed to keep anyone out of the church that God calls. Not the drug dealer, not the prostitute, not the fellow. Because everyone here and the one that is speaking to you has a past. But when they are called to Christ, they have a future. Now, if their behavior does not reflect what a true Christian should be, then we have to put them out. But even if we put them out, the door is not closed because the door is open and awaiting them to come to repentance. Amen. We put them out so they may come back. Jesus is not aiming these words just at the Jews 
who have been put out, who have been excommunicated, that have come to faith in Christ Jesus, he's given them comfort, but he's also aiming these words at the Jewish leadership that have presumed that they have the authority to control who comes to God's church and who doesn't. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3 in Revelation here. Look what Jesus says. I know your deeds. Doesn't Jesus know all about our struggles? All about our situation? All about our struggles? All about the places where we still fail him daily? The Lord knows his people and he knows those who have been faithful to him under difficult circumstances. And look what he says after this. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I don't know how many times I've had to tell you this, but you know, Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are not impressed with numbers. They're impressed with faithfulness. They're looking for faithfulness. He says, you have little strength, numerically and maybe even in resources, but because of your faithfulness, you have not denied my word. You're still preaching the gospel. You are still doing the things that please the Father. So I'm going to put before you an open door that cannot be shut. This door also depicts entry into the house of David. We see that in verse 7. It refers to the Messianic kingdom. And then later on, we get to verse 12, and I'll also refer to the very temple of God. That Christ has opened the door to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, and no one can share. Not Satan, not the beast. The beast is the government, not the Jewish leadership in Philadelphia who persecute the church of Christ. He is the one that opens the door. He is the one that calls people to himself. So the question still remains whether or not we are a member of this church in Philadelphia. Because Philadelphia was a church that had little power, but it had what? A lasting effect. This is a great promise here. He's saying that regardless of your numbers, regardless of your resources, I am with you and I am more than enough. Despite all of those who are much larger, who have many more resources, they have still refused to stick within the parameters of my wisdom. They have sought and compromised with paganism and with the secular world so that they could coexist. And because of that, I might just blow their candlestick out. But not here in the Church of Philadelphia. They were an effective witness, even while there were many in Jewish leadership that were persecuting them. Look at verse 9. 
Look at the promise that Jesus makes in verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. What a term. Who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. You see, when Jesus speaks of the synagogue of Satan, he refers to those who are in Jewish leadership that are hindering Christians from becoming, or Jews from becoming Christians, and he's saying they are not true Jews because if they were true Jews, they would recognize who he was. And they would not be a hindrance, but they would be what? A help. He's saying that they are upholding everything that the gospel is saying for them to do. There was once called this Council of Jamnia in 90 AD. And this is where the Jews came together uh, to formalize their canon of the Old Testament. And there was a prayer called the Twelfth Benediction that they would pray every time a Jew was converted to Christianity. I want you to listen to just a couple of words of this prayer. For apostates, let there be no hope. And the kingdom of insolence may its vow uproot speedily in our days. And let Christians and the heretics perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life, and let them not be written with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humbles the Israel. Man, can you imagine that? And think how it's totally juxtaposed to everything that the New Testament and Old Testament teaches us about being firmly in Christ, that our names are what? written in the book of life. They were deeply, during this time of John, Jews and Christians were deeply divided and hostile to one another. But again, Jesus makes his claim of his messianic kingdom that they are not a real synagogue. They are a synagogue of Satan hindering the work of the gospel and persecuting the true people of God. And that one day, he will ensure that those who have hindered this church will have to come before them and bow down before them. How do we see this manifested in modern times? I'm glad you asked. You know, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, when we see a large and impressive work of influential church that boasts of housing many Christians, they may just be housing many liars that are not true Christians. They may not be a church at all. They may be like this synagogue of Satan that doesn't teach or preach the gospel, but hinders the gospel by compromising with this world. They might just be a repository for people who are going to hell. I mean, think about that. If Satan sees in our lives 
a person that has a desire or an interest in seeking God. Is it better to control him by just putting him in a repository and let him think that he's doing the right thing? When all of his efforts are frivolous and then to work on those who are truly seeking the Lord? Look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see the whole idea of the double oppressed, Lord, Lord, or whatever the Lord calls your name twice, the saying that there's an intimate relationship between the two. Here, he's doing it in the reverse. They think they have an intimate relationship, which is incredible. You know, it's incredibly dangerous to be in the church of Jesus Christ and still be unsaved. To think that you have a relationship when all you have is a seed of You got to be a member of the visible and the invisible church. If you want to be a church that's going to be protected, if you want to be a church that's going to be given the promise like the church in Philadelphia. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3 of Revelation. Because they remain faithful, look what God promises them. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Underline that. That is a great Christian characteristic. To be patient and to endure. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. When the Lord brings a trial on the whole earth, but he promises that he will protect you, don't fail the test. Don't run, lean in. You've already been given a promise. Look what he said. He said that he will keep them from trial. Now, if you're going to be kept by God, this is something you've got to get through your head now. God will keep you through the trial, but not from the trial. They have been kept through the trial, kept through tribulation, kept through trouble. But the problem with most people, my friends, is you don't want to go through nothing. 
You don't want to go through anything. You want every day to be your birthday. You want every day to be the same as yesterday. You want peace, peace, where there is no peace. You gotta look at the preposition here. He says from is et or is ex. So it can be from, by, and I think the better word choice is through. Because he will keep you through trials, through tribulation, through trouble. But you gotta go through it to get to it. You can't go around it. He's saying here that Jesus Christ, I am the agent of the instrument that is being used to keep you. You know you kept when you go through the same thing that your unbelieving neighbor went through, but you still are around. That's kept. The Bible does not teach us that he will take away but that he will keep us and protect us. You know, we think this journey is leading up to November 3rd or something, but the journey starts November 4th. And the same one is going to have to keep you. We're going to have to rely more on the Lord. We're going to have to find that secret place. We're going to have to coalesce together as a congregation stronger and stronger because the world is going to hell. I don't know. You may never see them a banner or see any in, but the world is going to hell. So our focus is to save those that the Lord leads us to in every com every conversation, every contact, to disciple those who are slow in learning, to be patient and endure with those that we have been through before and who have rejected even the conversation of the gospel. I mean, what does Jesus tell us in John 17? He said, I'm praying for believers that they will remain in the world. Not take him out of the world. That they will faithfully serve him right here and right now. And we can't afford to, we can't afford to fail this test. We've got to understand that there are a gathering of witnesses looking down upon us that face a lot more than we have as of yet. And we need to be faithful as they will in the age that we are serving. That we are not a perfect church, but we want to be a pure church. The trial that is coming is not localized, it is universal. But Christ has already promised to preserve the church and to ensure our preservation. He never promises to pull us or pull the church out of here but to keep us. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus will not remove his church from this earth, but he will protect us in the hour of trust. But he requires that we become a member of the church of Philadelphia because he's looking for a church 
that is able to conquer. Look at Revelation uh, 3, 11 through 13. <clears throat> you Revelation 3, 11 through 13. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. He shall go out of it or never go out of it, and I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see here that Jesus quotes those two great theologians, Sam and Dave, and tells us to hold on. He's coming. Hold on to what you have. What are they are? What are they to hold on to? They are hold on to the gospel that they have been taught, that they have learned, that they have believed. Hold on to that gospel, and no one will ever be able to take their crown. Again, referring back to Isaiah 22, you got Shebna, who is crown is taken away and given to Eliakim because it's been faithful. The image here is no one will take our crown, regardless of how they come after us, regardless of how they try to hinder us. We will overcome because we're overcomers. And him who overcomes, there's another promise here, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city and that comes down from my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven. I will write on him my new name. I mean, that's some interesting things in just those three words. He said that he's going to make us, we're already overcomers, but he's going to make us a pillar. So what's a pillar? A pillar is that upright shaft in a structure, whether it's stone or brick, that supports the building. In God's temple, we will be a pillar. We want to sleep outside because we're worried about the building falling in on us. We will be part of the structure of the building. And we will never be forced to leave. We won't sleep outside in fear, but we will have permanent residence with God in His holy temple because we're chosen vessels of the body that now Peter says will be built into with living stones. And even more here, when we reflect at the words of the author of Hebrews, we will be a temple that cannot be shaken. Then he promises to give each of his people the name of his father and the name of the Holy City. You think this might have meant something to those who understood Philadelphia's history, knowing that his name had been changed twice, but now Christ himself says, I'm going to give you a new name. 
82. Every other name that your city has been changed to came from an undivided emperor of this society. But I'm going to give you the eternal name of God for your city. That will never be changed. Revelation 22 and 4. Those in the New Jerusalem will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will bear not just an image, but the very name of our God. God knows how to protect those who are his, even in the midst of trouble. Don't fail the test. Don't doubt God. Don't try to go around. Be willing to go through. Understand that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who call according to his purpose. Remember his promises to us that never fail, that he knows all the wiles of the devil and he knows how to protect us even in the midst of the storm. Trust him that he has the ability to preserve us and the ability to give us the strength to persevere. He is the resurrected Christ who has died, but now he lives again eternally. He's the one that opens the door that no one can shut and shuts the door that no one can open. Have you ever seen Jesus shut a door on you? You really wanted to do something? And he shed it down. But yet, have you ever seen him open? When you try through all of your efforts to make it come to pass, and he comes completely south of that and makes it happen. And then when he makes it happen, it's like it's a meat. <laughs> He's the slowest man who's always on time. We need to recognize that we serve a holy God and a God that is true. A God that lifts up a standard and he requires us to be in lockstep with him. That means that we have to be willing to sprout where we're planted. We have to be willing to stay faithful to his word and allow him to add to the number. You have to be so convinced that this is a fertile and nourishing feeding ground that you are like beggars who used to be in search for bread, now are willing to tell other beggars where they can be fed. That's how the church grows. He signs this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Lord, grant us ears to hear, eyes that truly see, a heart that is palatable, and a mind that has been convicted. It is in the precious name of Jesus. Let us pray.
Therefore, Father, we just love you, we praise you, we give you honor and glory. Stand up in us like never before, put a rod of steel in our back. Let us go through it to get to it. Let us stop being uh, so cowardly in all of the things that we face. Let us recognize that we are more than overcomers. We come to be. Let us trust you in all things. Let us prepare for the coming challenge. Let us build an ark where those who are drowning in the sin of the world can escape to. Because Lord, yes, you have promised that it won't be a flood the next time, but fire. So Lord, let us be that safe haven that people might be able to come into and grow in you. Most importantly than just growing a church, we want to grow Christians. People who are solidly committed to you. People that we recognize and you recognize are yours. And that will be saved from the wrath of your Father to come. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all of us truly say, Amen. Amen.